not just your own marriage and family, but the marriage and families of, of countless hundreds of other marriages and families who are where they are today because of the courage you've had to pick up the sword and go to battle for them. Um, the lover face, as you know, we've seen the tender side of you, and we've, uh, we've been inspired by your marriage and by how you, the husband and the father that you've been in front of, of all of us. And then the friend face, you know, there's probably... Probably a lot of men even in this room and hundreds of others who, if they were to list their friends on a sheet of paper, the list might not be very long, but most of them, a lot of them would include your name on it. And, uh, and I just want you to know um, how grateful I am for you. And I also want you to know that um, I used this sword yesterday morning as an illustration, but I really brought it this week as a gift to you, to honor you. And so... Um, I want you to know that I'm, I'm proud of the man that you are, and I'm honored to do ministry side by side with you, and I've been uh, led and inspired by you, um, and uh, I just honor the courageous leadership and the courageous man uh, that you are, and so I want to say uh, how proud I am of you, and that you are a real man, and you are an inspiration to us, and I want to do one more thing. Uh, I'm going to ask the men in the room, would you stand? Because it also struck me, uh, Pete, that um, I think there's something in the soul of every boy and every man that longs to have his dad see him into manhood and to be able to say, son, I'm proud of you. You've become a good man. And, and I know that you don't have that, you, your dad, but I want you to know your dad would be so proud of you, of the man that you've become and the leader that you've become. And you never were able to hear those words from your dad. But on behalf of the men standing here, we stand in his place today and say, we are so proud of you. And you are a good man, uh, a, a man among men. And William Wallace in, you know, in the movie Braveheart, when he said, about ready to lead men into battle, and he raised his sword, and they said, I don't know if we want to go, because we might die. And he said, I, you might. He said, but all men die, but few men really live. And we just want you to know we're grateful for your life and your leadership and for the man that you are. Now you're cutting into my time. <laughs> Thank you. Now let's continue our talk about nutrition. <clears throat> How do, what? I, I didn't, I, you know what? I, I, did, I planned that and I planned this. I didn't plan a transition. <clears throat> so we're going to shift without a clutch. Uh, so tonight we're going to talk more about sex, um, and one of the topics that um, so many of you came up to me, uh, and by the way, you know what, we're, now we're going to get into stuff that I didn't want to cover with middle school students in the room, okay? So this is not going to be a talk on how to improve your sex life if you're married, okay? There's not going to be a lot of, I'm sorry about that, um, and, the, and the pictures that I draw will only be graphs, okay? So, um, but I will say this. Tonight's talk could have that impact. I think that the stuff that we're going to do tonight could have a, a tangible impact on an effect on the sex life in your marriage, if you're married. Um, I don't know if I want it to be recorded. It is being recorded. Um, but it was interesting because after last night's talk, uh, so a number of you came up to me in the hallway, some immediately, some later, some today, and just said, okay, but 
what, you know, all that stuff that, that makes so much sense, but what if we have a sexual past, and what about all those pathways that have already been grooved in our brains for other people, and what about bonds that were created with other people, you know, what about that? And, and I'm glad you raised the question, because that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we're going to look at how uh, our sexual history, and why don't, why don't you pass these out, Peter? <laughs> I really wanted you to work tonight, that's why I had you up here, but... Um, I'm going to give you a handout again tonight because it'll give you, for two reasons. One, to kind of follow along and I think some stuff that you'll want to be able to look back on. The other is I've also put in uh, the handout in the outline a lot of what we covered last night. Um, I did that for, for two reasons. One is uh, that you would have it in print so you'd kind of have it as a review of last night's stuff uh, if you want to think back on that. And the other is I, I gave myself the option in case... Um, at the last minute, I made changes to last night's talk. I wanted to be able to come back and at least hit that stuff with you. So I included a lot of that in the, on the first page of the outline uh, of a review of last night. We're not going to recover that stuff. I just wanted you to be able to have it in print. Um, but what I want to do, and so you'll see that the title is Sex, Past, and Present. What I really want to talk about is how our sexual pasts impact our present. Um, how does... A, how does the fact that you know a lot of us didn't um, end up where we would like to be, uh, what does that have to do with it? So we're going to look at how our sexual past, how our sexual history has impacted our lives and our marriages. Whether you're married now or not, uh, our sexual past has an impact on all of us and who we are right now, okay? Even those of you that are here and you're currently married, even how if you and your current spouse began having sex before you were married, the impact that that has on your marriage. And you may never have thought about that before. When I started, uh, over the last three years, I had a chance to talk to some people this morning. Um, I won't give you a lot of history, but I began delving into this topic with because I really had a desire to get after the issue of initially pornography, but then I quickly realized it was not about as much about pornography. The issue isn't pornography, and all, although we often say that we often focus on pornography as an issue, I don't think we need to say pornography is an issue. Because if I did a survey right now in this room of how many of you think pornography is really is a good thing, I don't think there's anybody in the room who go, yeah, you know, I think it's kind of a good thing. Everybody knows it's bad. I don't need to tell, you, tell people how bad pornography is. So pornography is not the issue. The issue is us sexually, especially as men, what's going on inside of us that would even make that a temptation. And so um, I began this process and developed the, the content that we're, we're talking about last night and tonight and some other stuff as well. Uh, but over the, what, par, through that process over the last three years, uh, one of the things that I've done is has done a survey with the men that I've taken through this process. Now, I, I think we've done, and we used an electronic survey, so it was absolutely anonymous. It was really a cool way to do it, and you get 100% feedback, and it's absolutely anonymous. Um, and you can also correlate the data. So I can tell of all the people that answered question one this way, how did they answer question three, although I have no idea who that was. So it's really cool. Um, but probably, the survey is probably five to 600 men now. So it's a pretty significant survey. Most of these are guys at our church and another church in Chicago where I did this. Uh, so a lot, so the, the survey was really done with a lot of you know, kind of church guys, guys that, like you, guys that have grown up in the church, been in the church, really good men, uh, men who uh, are wanting to serve God and wanting to live for God. And so you know, this isn't, I didn't take this at like some you know, bar somewhere. This is a survey that was done at our church. Um, and when I did the survey, I found that 88% of the men surveyed said that they had had sex before they were married. Okay? So that question last night, why, does God want us to have why doesn't God want us to have sex before we're married? We, the reality is we all know that that's true. God doesn't want us to have sex before we're married. And yet, literally, close to 90% of us had sex before we were married. Okay? So my contention is never has there been a piece of information where we are more clear on what God wants us to do, and yet we follow it less. Um, and so the question is why, and that's what we got into last night a little bit. So 88% said, said they'd had sex before they were married. 71% said that they had sex, those that were married said that they had sex with their spouse. Those two had sex before they got married. 71%, almost three-fourths. 84% of the men surveyed had had sex with more than one person, so sex with more than just their wife. Now, and this is, this is kind of shocking to me. 63% had had sex with, so almost two-thirds of the men surveyed had had sex with four or more women. 
and 35%, over a third of the men, had had sex with 11 or more women. Okay? Um, so this is, this is a significant issue. And my guess is, in, if we were to survey the, the, those, all of you in this room, you would fall in line pretty much with those same statistics. So when I talk about God's design is us for us to have sex with one other person on the planet in our lifetime, that's the way we've been wired, that's the way we've been designed, physically, emotionally, spiritually. The reality is the vast majority of us aren't there. And so then the question is, you know, what do we do with that? Because I, most of us think, well, that stuff's all in the past. You know, it shouldn't affect us now. It shouldn't affect our marriage, but it does. And, and it may be a much bigger part of why the marriage is struggling than you've ever thought before. It may have had, it may have more of an impact in, in what's going on in your marriage than you may have given it credence before, okay? So what I want to do tonight is look at the impact that sex before marriage has had on us and continues to have on us, even 30, 40 years later. Um, and, and the, but I also want to make sure we get to what you can do about it, okay? Because there is hope. Um, and what I'm going to say as we start is what I really want you to do too, though, is guard your hearts. Because this is not about guilt or shame. As we, as we go back and think about our sexual past, this is not to heap any more guilt or shame on you. Okay, Remember, above all things, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for this too. And, um, and if you've turned your life over to Christ and received the forgiveness that he offers through his death on the cross, then you can walk free of that guilt and shame. That's available to us. And so... Uh, what I also want to talk about tonight, though, is how even though we've been forgiven for that, because I, I know guys, I talked to men in my church when we were going through this who said, okay, I, you know, I, that's, I, I had sex with a lot of women before I was married, before I was a Christian. I've since given my life to Christ. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has forgiven me for that. I mean, there's not a doubt in my mind that that's in my past and it's been forgiven. So why does it still bother me? Why do I still have those images and those memories playing in my head? Why does it still seem to plague me? I know God has forgiven me for that, and we're going to talk about that uh, tonight because you may still be living with, even though God has forgiven you, you may still be living with the consequences of that sex. And then uh, finally, before, this is kind of before we really get into it, on the issue of shame, one of the things that has really struck me in this process, and, and I don't know, this may not be the official definition of shame, but, but I've come to a practical understanding in talking to men, um, and I would assume it would be the same for the women, about shame, and, and I would define shame this way. Um, guilt is feeling that I did something wrong. It's the understanding that I did something wrong. Shame, so guilt is feeling bad for what I did. Shame is feeling bad for who I am. Guilt is feeling bad about something I've done. Shame is feeling bad about who I am and the kind of person I am. And when I talk to people, here's how I would define shame. Shame is that feeling that if you knew what I was really like, if you knew what was really going on inside my head at times and the things that I've thought and the things that I've done, you wouldn't like me. You would reject me. There's no way you'd let me come speak at your deal. That's shame. That says, if you knew what was really going on in here, you would reject me. And so when I think about the, you know, people praying to have God release them from the shame, I think he can do that. But I think there's also, what, in my experiences, there's a much more pragmatic way that God often relieves the shame that we carry around. And it's through other people. Because if the feeling of shame is the feeling that if I told you what was really going on in me, if you knew my past, you wouldn't like me. You would lose respect for me. And when I finally have the courage to share that with a group of people, and this is what I've challenged men that went through this with me in our church, I said, when you have the courage to share something at your table or in your small group, the, the kind of thing that you're just sure when you share that they will reject you. And then you find out that they don't reject you. One layer of shame gets pulled away. And I, some things, I think there are some things in our life that the only way that we will ever deal with the shame that we carry around is when we have some trusted people that can, we can begin to confess and share that with and, and have the, and experience grace from them and the fact that they don't reject us and don't run away from us. And I just mention that now because, you know, even in your small group tonight, if it's a, if it's a safe group of people for you, you may want to attack that one 
and begin to share some stuff that maybe you would, you're feeling shame about and see if maybe just those people will still embrace you and not reject you and run away or kick you out of their group and watch God begin to peel away the layers of shame, all right? Let me pray, and then we'll get into tonight's topic. God, I pray that as we delve into uh, this delicate topic of our sexual past, that you will protect um, my friends' hearts. Uh, God, in this room, would you move in a mighty way? Would you uh, shine your light to reveal in the dark parts of our life stuff that maybe we haven't wanted to look at before, but in a way that brings it to light, that you can deal with it? Um, And then, God, I pray that people would find help and hope and healing tonight and that we would walk out of here lighter than we walked in because we're carrying less guilt and shame. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last night we talked about, uh, and you see the review there, we talked about God's design of sex. I'm not going to walk through all that. We talked about the fact that there's, there's the different aspects of sex. There's a physical aspect of sex, the theological aspect. Um, I want to just hit on a couple things that I didn't say last night. Um, as we go through that. When I talk about sex was designed for pleasure, here's the actual numbers. There are 8,000 nerve endings in a woman's clitoris and 4,000 nerve endings in the tip of a penis, okay? That's a lot, by the way. I don't know if you knew that, um, but I just thought you'd want to know that. The other thing is, um, um, and I intentionally never went to any mention of orgasms last night because I didn't want to get confusing for kids or a little too graphic, but I don't really care about being graphic with you. So um, here's what's interesting. When we start talking about how God designed sex for pleasure, one is the nerve endings, but the other is just the human orgasm. An orgasm is the most intense physical and emotional experience a person can have. Interesting that the most intense physical and emotional experience a person can have, God designs it around this experience, the sexual experience. In fact, it only lasts a few seconds. Which I think is wise, because if it, was, if it lasted longer than that, we wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> it's also, I also think it's kind of intriguing that it's so intense of an experience um, that afterwards God says, you need to take a break before you have another one of those. <laughs> one of those deals. All right? All right. So, um, But then we talked about how uh, in sex, we, re- we actually this idea of being made in the image of God, that it's actually the sexual union of a husband and wife that is the expression of the oneness that the Trinity experiences and that we experience uh, in marriage as well. And then we began talking about um, the relational side of it, uh, that the two become one flesh. We we talked about the brain uh, and all that kind of stuff. And what I want to move now to is, I'll keep going, Um, when we talked about the oxytocin and vasopressin, Oops, there's our friends, the neurons. Remember, we talked about in the kind of God's model, which statistically would only be for probably about 10% of us, where the only person we've ever had sex with is our spouse, the, um, the vasopressin and the, the oxytocin, um, I'm sorry, not the vasopressin. Yeah, the oxytocin and vasopressin, those increase, um, and, and the endorphins and encephalins kind of, taper off over time, but the bonding increases uh, over time. Um, And again, what I didn't say to them is, uh, we talked about the different places, like for a woman, it's uh, labor and delivery and breastfeeding and sex. For man, for men, it's primarily sex. But these chemicals, the endorphins, and especially the vasopressin and oxytocin, are released in, in gradual and kind of incremental amounts throughout the whole sexual arousal process. But then they're released in explosive amounts in, in, during an orgasm, okay? So that's why that's such a critical part of the sexual experience that God put into play there, that the oxytocin, uh, there is a much, much greater release of that uh, during uh, orgasm. And that's why uh, it's important for the sexual experience of both men and women. Uh, we talked about men being visual, but what's really intriguing to me, and I didn't say this last night, um, but for men to note this, uh, and I think it's in your notes, whatever a man is looking at during his orgasm, he will sexually connect to. Whatever our eyes are looking at, um, the oxytocin that is released in those massive amounts during a man's orgasm, um, ejaculation, is, is, causes us to do, have a bond, a chemical bond created with whatever we're looking at at the moment of our orgasm, all right? Which raises a huge question. 
what are men looking at in the moment of their orgasm? Um, and this is where the pornography thing becomes a huge issue. Because it's not just neutral. It's not just, oh, it's a guy thing. That you literally can become bonded with images. You literally become bonded with certain types of images of women or certain body parts that you tend to focus on when a man is looking at pornography. That is a, there is a chemical bond in our brain, okay? And that impacts our ability to bond with our wife. Um, listen to what Douglas Weiss, great book, and I put a reference in the back of your thing to several uh, references that I use that might be helpful for you. Uh, a, a book called Sex, Men, and God, which is a great book if you want to go through a book to follow up on this with a group of men. Um, but he's a therapist, and so he writes from the perspective of, of talking to different counselees and stuff, and he says, he says this about his, one of his clients, Stan. When Stan was a teenager, he lived on a farm with his family. He reached adolescence with the normal sexual desires. Then when he was in his teens, he began to be sexual with himself. He began to masturbate. Um, he, he, the bed he slept in in his parents' house had uneven legs, so as Stan was masturbating, his bed would go bump, bump, bump. The sound was heard throughout the house. The next morning, Stan's fam family would laugh and joke about his behavior the night before. You've heard the cliche that necessity is the mother of invention. Stan, a smart farm boy, found a solution to his embarrassment relatively quickly. He waited until everyone in the house was asleep. Then he put his boots on and would walk quietly out of the house, through the yard, and past the barn where no one could see him. While being sexual with himself, Stan had the choice of looking up or down, he chose to look down. The boots he was wearing were in his field of vision. Do you remember Pavlov's theory of ringing the bell and feeding the dog? You guessed it. Stan began to connect his sexual release to his boots. When Stan finally called for help, he was 48 years old. He had never masturbated or had sex with a woman without his boots on. And he had a full wall for his boot collection. This is a true story of a man whose sex glue attached to the wrong thing. And so when you think about the way, but that God designed that into our system, God designed us to bond men with whatever we're looking at at the moment of our orgasm. The question is, what, did, what was God intending for me to be looking at in, in the moment of my climax? Well, he intended to me to be looking in the face of my wife, which is why um, humans are the only... Or, Humans are the only animals that mate face-to-face. -face. In fact, I was reading one counselor said he even suggested to his uh, married clients that he was working with that one of the things that might actually help them kind of further in this bonding process is to be intentional. And when you're having sex, in the moment of, and this is, by the way, the only sex tip you'll get from me tonight, is when in the moment of climax for a man... Be intentional about getting close and looking deep into each other's eyes. And he said there can be some intense bonding that can happen through that. I mentioned that, to, I don't think I did it to the whole group, I mentioned that to a group of guys when I was first doing this, and I had guys come back to me and go, holy cow, I tried that with my wife. It was amazing, okay? So that's, this is not my suggestion. This is something I read. Do not go back to your cabin or your room tonight and say, now Gordy said we need to, okay, because I'll deny it. I'm, not, I'm just telling you something I read and other people that have said it, it's a cool deal. All right. <clears throat> we talked about this last night and how that diminishes um, and we summarized it uh, finally with this, and this is in your notes. Uh, you were designed to bond with one other person on the planet. Now, we talked last night with the, uh, the kids about how intimacy develops over the period of a, over a relationship. Um, they're actually, I want to go into a little bit more detail on that tonight because uh, a guy named Roger Hillerstrom has done some research on that, and he actually has... Uh, measured and can mark the stages of intimacy. He said there's basically five stages of intimacy in a romantic relationship, and um, they're not necessarily contingent on these levels of conversation, he said, but you can kind of tell where somebody is in their level of intimacy by the kinds of regular conversations that they have. And you can see, um, and see, so it's measurable. And so you can see that we, the five levels there, I've even listed some of the things that he says, you know, are, are indicative of that. You know, in level one, 
there's just kind of this superficial talking, you know, this kind of some facts. Sure is a nice day. The twins won last night. That sunset is gorgeous. We just kind of say some basic facts. Level two, we start talking about third-party perspectives. Now, notice that it's still not very uh, vulnerable because I'm not really revealing much about me. I'm just kind of starting to put stuff, stuff out there. Like yesterday, the president said, my pastor believes, my uncle used to say. I'm kind of throwing some stuff, some opinions and stuff out there, but they're not mine. So it's not quite as vulnerable. Level three, we begin talking about our own sets of beliefs and values um, and perceptions um, and see the, the higher the intimacy goes, the riskier it is because at every level of intimacy, somebody, the person could at this point go, no, this is, no, I don't like you and now I'm going to leave you. And so that's what intimacy is. The more I reveal about myself and you and I stay together and stay connected, the deeper we grow. Level four, we begin talking more about personal history and pasts and uh, failings and successes. Level five is when we get into feelings and dreams and hopes and aspirations and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so you see uh, some of that. Now, here's what's really interesting to me. Um, Hillerstrom's research shows that... Uh, what happens when you introduce a relationship, when you introduce sex into a relationship. Now, so let's talk about where, what God's, you know, go back to the kind of the perfect model, God's design for sex. Where do you think in God's design he would want us to begin having sex? Five, yeah. See, in God's design, we would, the, the, the courting, the dating relationship, the relationship would build through all five stages to the point we recognize, yes, this is the person God wants me to marry, and you both recognize that, and then you've already developed that intense level of intimacy, personal intimacy, emotional intimacy, and then you get married, and then you introduce sex into that, and it takes that emotional intimacy that you've built, and now it takes it to a whole new level of intimacy, physical intimacy and bonding, and that's the way. Where do you think most dating couples introduce sex into the relationship? Somewhere around level two, maybe less. Between two and three, these days, a lot of times it's in level two. And here's the thing that I hit on last night, but this is what's really amazing. Wherever you are, at whatever stage you are, when you introduce sex in a dating relationship, it stops the development of intimacy, and you stay stuck there, even if you get married. And I know people that have been married for 30 years, and they're still stuck right here because they began having sex before they were married. And, um, and I've, I've now done this all, both with the men that I've done it with and now with several hundred other married couples. And um, so probably a thousand people have heard me do this. I have never once had somebody come up to me and say, yeah, I don't, that didn't, that's not true for us. Not one. But I can't tell you the number of people that have come up and said, that's us. That explains everything. Um, I have a friend, Karen, I have a friend that was actually in our small group at church that I married them, um, and they went through a divorce, and he was in one of the first groups of guys that went through this with me, and he came up to me afterwards, and he goes, that's why we got divorced. We started dating, and things were going great, and we felt close, and we started having sex, and we didn't realize it at the time, but the intimacy stopped growing, and we got married, and eventually she just couldn't take any more of the fact that we had never grown closer past that, and we got divorced. Um, so the introducing sex to a dating relationship stops the growth of intimacy. All right. Now, there's some great stuff that's been written on this. Barbara Wilson has written some books called um, Kiss Me Again, Restoring Lost Intimacy in Marriage and the Invisible Bond, How to Break Free from Your Sexual Past. And I, some, of the, some of her insights into this are great. I just want to share some of that with you. Um, she says that, that premarital sex inhibits emotional growth. And here's the, here's the explanation of that, which I think is really helpful. She says, once we have sex, we feel close, right? Because we all understand that, that bonding thing that happens, even if we're not. We feel close, even if we're not close. We feel close or attached. And so because of that, we're less likely to take risks. Why? Because we're not married yet, and we have a lot more to lose. Now we're feeling close to the person, and even more, we don't want to take the chance of losing them. So we actually take less risks with them emotionally. We think that we're, she says, we think that they're the ones that we're going to marry, or at least our bodies feel married. 
And so our bodies begin to think that they're the ones that we're going to marry. And when we feel closer to somebody than we actually are, um, we're unable to take the risks necessary for emotional growth. She says we often remain at the level of intimacy reached when we started having sex. And sex then becomes the replacement for the levels of intimacy that we haven't reached yet. Since we aren't able to adequately communicate our needs, we fulfill them with sex. We communicate love with sex. We resolve conflict with sex. Um, and those of you that have been in dating relationships or maybe when you were dating your current spouse, you, you know that that cycle happens, that when you start having sex, sex pretty quickly becomes the focus of the relationship. And when you feel distant from each other, what do you do? You have sex so that you feel close again. When you're in conflict, you have sex, and somehow things seem to, that seems to make a difference, and it does. But the problem is, when you're feeling distant, instead of talking about it and figuring it out and getting emotionally close, you're using sex to be the thing that is what draws you together and what resolves conflict. Um, what happens when those two people get married, she says? They think, they begin to think, uh, as because the sex is bonding them, even if they haven't grown anymore on the emotional scale, they begin to think, we're meant for each other. Because sex has made them feel bonded and close and perfect for each other. There's this false sense of we must be the perfect people for each other. But before long, after getting married, they realize they don't know each other as well as they thought. And they've, after they've hurt each other enough, they learn not to venture beyond the safe level of communication. They shy away from the risk and vulnerability necessary for intimacy to grow even after they're married. And so conflict escalates in the marriage. Sex ceases to be effective in resolving it like it used to be. And they begin to feel resentful of the other person. The results? Some couples stay married but live separate lives emotionally. They just kind of go on two parallel tracks. And this can surface in their sexual relationship, especially for women. Because without emotional closeness for women, sex loses its meaning, and even the desire to have sex is lost. Some couples wound each other too much in this process and shut down completely and end up ending the marriage. Others seek to have their emotional and physical needs met through emotional and or physical affairs. And so this can often lead down that dark path as well. You may not think, this, is, this was what was intriguing to me, you may think that the, division, the decision to have premarital sex is one that's often driven by the men. Barbara Wilson says, not necessarily. She says, women, in their desire for closeness, for relational closeness, may begin to jump through the levels of intimacy quickly in days or even in hours. Because the woman, somebody that she's attracted to and she likes, and so she may attempt to move the relationship quickly by herself beginning to share and open up at deeper and deeper levels of intimacy. But if he's not at the same level of communication, it's not true intimacy. For example, she begins sharing at, at the level of needs and emotions and desires and fears. And at level, basically, she's sharing level five stuff. And, and because he's interested in her, he becomes a very good listener. And she feels, she feels intimacy in that because he's listening to her share her heart and he's accepting of that. And yet he responds, not in kind, but he responds by sharing kind of facts and, um, and opinions, level, kind of level two. And so she feels intimate because he listened and engaged in the conversation even if he didn't engage in it at the same level that she was at. And so it's, there's a false intimacy created, uh, an intimacy that doesn't really exist. This false intimacy, she says, can lead women to pursue sex before marriage because she feels close and she may push the physical limits herself as a way to confirm that he feels the same way about her. She's wanting to know, does he feel as close to me as I feel to him? And so she may push the physical boundaries into sex as a way to hopefully affirm for her that, yes, he feels the same way that she does. She knows that a guy's willingness to have sex with her doesn't indicate his love for her, but she's hoping it does. The man then remains at this lower level of intimacy because once we start having sex, the intimacy stops growing. So because of that, he stays stuck at level two. 
even though he has the potential as a man to relate at much higher levels to her. And Barbara Wilson says, when a, man, when a woman gives in to sex too soon, she may be denying him the chance to be the kind of soulmate she hopes for. Then she marries him. At some point in the marriage, she resents him because he doesn't share emotional intimacy with her. And it may not be totally his fault. So neither one of them has any idea that the lack of intimacy in their marriage goes all the way back to the sex that they had before they got married. Does it sound familiar to anybody? And we'll talk more about what we can do about that. But the reality is, this isn't something that just kind of goes away after you've been married for a while. Um, her story, if you get one of her books, her story is, and I've actually met her and, and, and heard her speak, she tells the story that she and her husband had been married for about 25 years when she figured out they were still stuck at like level two because they began having sex before they were married. Um, and that, I found that to be the case of so many couples. All right, Let's talk then about uh, what happens with, um, with the endorphins and keflins and oxytocin with, uh, with multiple partners. We talked about God's view of what happens with one, but let's talk about that, because we talked last night just a little bit about how the oxytocin drops off. But there's a, I think this is an interesting scenario when you think about you know, somebody like the, you know, I said 65% or close to two-thirds of men, the men I surveyed had, had sex with four or more women. So let's just kind of go with that, the four scenario. What happens with the, the chemistry in our brain through that process? Well, when we have sex for the very first time, let's say we're you know, 16 and we you know, have sex with the, our first girlfriend or whatever it is, the endorphins and keflins are really high. You know, it's like, wow, this is amazing, that kind of a thing. And then they begin to drop down a little bit. The oxytocin starts off, and it's bonding us with that person. And then some, somewhere along the way, um, probably because we're still at like level one intimacy, we break up with that person. And then pretty soon, we start dating somebody else. And those of you that have been there, you know the scenario. You always begin in the, next, the subsequent relationship. You always introduce sex in the relationship sooner than you did the relationship before, often at a lower level of intimacy. And so now you start having... Now, here's what's interesting. With the next person the oxytocin starts to die off a little bit. We talked about that. But the endorphins and enkephalins come back to that high level because now the sex with this new person is a new experience, and it's fun and exciting. So all of a sudden, it's back up here going, whoa, this is amazing, which helps our brain think, ooh, this is the right person because that was the wrong person. The sex is better. So maybe this is the person I'm supposed to be with. And it affirms the fact, so it affirms us having sex, and we think, oh, this is a good thing, and, and, but then that kind of dies off a little bit. And the oxytocin's still there, but it's not working quite as well and not as much. And so the same thing kind of happens with this relationship. We break up with that person. That happens again. We meet somebody else, start having sex. Woo, it's great. Up again. Okay, the sex dies down. It's not quite as good. Um, and then, whoops, I'm sorry, I'm kind of tailing off. And then somewhere along here, you know, maybe in like the fourth one, we... Um, we're kind of about here in the relationship. We're having sex. It's not as good as it was when we started, but, you know, it's sex. It's, it's good. Um, and then we decided, this is the person I'm going to marry. And so we get married. And now look at what happens. Now, 10, 20 years later, 5, 7, 15 years later, here we are. We're down here. The endorphins and keflins have died way off in the experience. The oxytocin is not doing a whole lot for us. So there's not a whole lot of bonding that happens. And now we find ourselves in this kind of thing. And so let's talk about where this gets us into trouble. Because very often in a marriage that's down here chemically with sex because of the, because of the past that we've introduced into our brain, uh, we start thinking things like, well, the sex just isn't as good. And we put that on the other person. Yeah, the, the sex, and it's, it's really her, and it's really him. It's just, I don't know, it's just not there anymore. And we begin to equate that with the relationship. Maybe there's something wrong in the relationship. And it's often at that stage that, that people start acting out and even acting out sexually. And often that's where pornography comes into the picture. We begin to justify it going, yeah, but the sex isn't good anymore, and I, you know, I'm a man, and I've got needs. And, and so you know, we begin to rationally just, it's not really my fault. If she was really you know, doing for me what she should be doing, I wouldn't have to look at this stuff. All that kind of crazy stuff that we start rationalizing our behavior and, uh, and even start acting out sexually and, and having affairs and stuff like that. 
Also, here's what's really intriguing to me. Kind of the latest, um, I wouldn't say craze, but one of the latest dilemmas that we're having to deal with is the whole Facebook dilemma and high school reunions. Do you know how many people are hooking up with their like high school sweethearts at high school reunions and having, going back and having sex? Well, think about this. You're down here and sex with your spouse isn't that great and you're wondering, well, if this is a good thing anymore. And now all of a sudden you have the ability to connect back with, with that boyfriend or girlfriend from high school and what you remember is this. And you're going, I want to go back and experience that again, right? And so people are hooking up with previous boyfriends and girlfriends, but it makes all kinds of sense because our brain is going, take me back here because we're still bonded to them. And our brain remembers the chemicals because our, when, when our, you know, the chemicals, and we won't get into this, but the chemicals are like any other chemicals that we put into our brain. Our brain can become addicted to its own chemicals. In other words, when your, chemicals rele- when your brain releases certain kinds of chemicals, your brain likes that and calls for those again. So when your brain isn't getting the endorphins and encephalins from sex anymore, it begins to say, well, maybe we should go back and get those again. And so it becomes um, a problem. And so it's, it's a desire to go back there. Um, and then there is, I said something about the bonding, and there is the issue of the bonding. Uh, And that is this. And this is one that was really kind of intriguing to me. I spent some time actually with John Ortberg and had some great conversations around that with this idea, um, which I had saw so many guys. Okay, so here's a husband and wife, and they're bonded physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That's what sex does. It's the three physical, emotional, spiritual bonding. Okay, but what if that's not the only bond that's been created for you? You know, let's go back and talk about, okay, so you had sex when you were 16 for the first time and, and you got physically, emotionally, se- sexually bonded with that person. Physically, emotionally, spiritually bonded, okay? You broke up with her or him. Then there was that other one, kind of when you were late high school. Then there was, you know, the boyfriend, girlfriend in college. And I thought that was going to be the one, but it wasn't. Then there was spring break. I don't really want to talk about that one. That was like a quick one. And then there was this other one over here before I got married, when I got out of college, and then this other one long, you know, and so there's this picture of, you've got, I'm, and then I get married, and I'm carrying all, I'm, I'm carrying these physical, emotional, spiritual bonds with me into marriage, and here is the dilemma, because of what we said before, you know, this is, you know, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for this. You've been, you know, if you know Christ, you've been forgiven for this. It's gone. But there is a, you know, so this, there's the sin element of this. And that's been forgiven. But what I've discovered is there is a difference between the sin of the sexual past and the bonds that were created from the sexual past. And God may have forgiven the sin of that, but you are still carrying around all those bonds. You're still carrying around because of what's happened physiologically in you. You've been physically, emotionally, spiritually bonded with these people, and you're carrying that in. And, um, and what do you do with that? Um, and that's the, you know, I've encountered so many people as I've done this who have said, you know, I know God has forgiven me for this, but it still plagues me. It still bothers me. Well, that's because there's still that bonding that's been carried around, all right? Um, so let's talk then about the impact on our marriage and wh- what we do with that, okay? Um, With our previous sexual partners, we bring that bondedness into marriage. I said that. And that decreases, all of this decreases our ability to really bond with our spouse. So not only are we kind of bringing other people into the bedroom in that experience, and it's not a unique experience with our our spouse, but it actually inhibits our ability to physically, emotionally, spiritually bond with one person. Um, But there's also this, here's the other thing that's intriguing for me, is this idea of those of you that had sex with your current spouse before you two were married. Because I think there's something in us that thinks that, yeah, that was wrong. I understand that that was wrong. But somehow when we got married, 
that seem to take away the, that, that kind of, it kind of neg negates it out, right? I mean, it's just kind of, it's a wash, right? Because now, I, yeah, I shouldn't have, we shouldn't have sex before we're married, but now we're married, so that was okay. Well, I mean, let's assume that you own a pizza parlor, and I come in and rob your pizza parlor. I hold you up at gunpoint, and you, I take $5,000 in cash from your pizza parlor, and I get away, and, um, but now you've got to pay bills, and so your accountant shows you that you're carrying this you know, $5,000 loss on your books for a few months and trying to get through that, and you're still carrying a loss on your books because the insurance money hasn't come through or whatever. And then through a whole series of events, I get rich, and I come, and I buy your pizza parlor. So part of what I'm buying is I'm buying the debt that I created myself from that. So when I buy your pizza parlor, does it make the crime that I committed go away? Does it make it okay? Well, no. But I, and I think we sometimes think of sex before marriage with our spouse that way, that somehow when we got married, that takes away the wrongness of what we did before. But think about it this way. When you had sex with your spouse... Before you were married, you were creating a bond with somebody, with a person that God did not intend you to bond with. And you carry that into marriage. And so I think in some sense, you've got a bond with this person that you had sex with while you were dating and a bond with your spouse. And this bond that was created with the two of you before you were married is having an impact on your ability even to bond as a couple now. Um, as well as impacting the intimacy, all right? So, and the levels of intimacy. So, where do we go from here? And, and, and what I want to say is there's all kinds of hope, and I've seen people receive that. Um, I think God is still in the healing business. I know that God is still in the miracle business. And when you talk about something that has a physical, emotional, spiritual context to it, that there is a bond that you are carrying around that is, that is even outside the realm of in a different realm than the sin of it. The sin has been forgiven, but there's still a physical, emotional, spiritual bond. I want you to know that God longs to heal you of that. And he can, and I've seen him do it countless times. And so... Um, one of the things that I'm going to suggest that I've had, that have had, you know, hundreds of people go through, um, and have said this is an amazing process, is to is to go through and to literally go through a process of asking God to heal you, to remove the bonds that were created from previous sexual partners, and to ask God to heal you the same way He would heal any other kind of physical wound, um, and and the process that you go through to do that is is a little bit extensive. Um, but here's what it is. It's, it starts by making a list, okay? Making a list of all your previous sexual partners. And, um, and I would, you know, go off on your own and do this. This is not one to do. I would even be really careful about doing this with your spouse. Um, but making, making that list and then, um, and, and guarding uh, your heart at the same time. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want the making the list to be an opportunity for the enemy to kind of relive those experiences and memories with you. So be prayed up before you do that. Um, and then to pray a prayer to ask God to release you. Now in the back of your notes, I've, I've put in kind of a, a suggested prayer that you can use for that, okay? Um, and this, it's a modified version that comes out of Barbara Wilson's book. Uh, she talks about going through this herself uh, in this process. Um, and, then, and then taking some time and just each one of those situations, raising it up to God. And, and, and you can see how if you read through that prayer, don't, you don't need to do it now, but it, you ask God, you, you know, you, again, you ask God to forgive you for that. But then you ask him to release you of any bonds that were created with this person. Um, and... Uh, and again, you do this, you know, it, this means praying this prayer over each one of those people. This does not mean going, oh God, here's my list. It's 16 pages, but will you please release all these bonds? It's not that, but it's taking the time and saying, God, you know, would you do that uh, with each one of those? And then a couple of things that I would suggest. Um, afterwards, after you go through that process, um, a couple of things. Uh, burn the list, okay? Don't keep the list. Because that can just be an opportunity for your mind to go back those places. So don't, this is not one to fold and stick in your underwear drawer. Just use it for this exercise and then get rid of it. Um, I wouldn't, 
if you want to, to tell your spouse that you're, you're going through this and you're doing this and ask them to pray for you, that'd be great. I wouldn't share the list. Again, you don't want that to be an image that is in their brain that becomes a negative thing for them, okay? Um, and know that the feelings vary. You know, healing isn't based on what we feel. And so you may get done and not feel anything, um, or, you know, maybe I had a friend that did this, and he, uh, he went through this just this spring, uh, and came back to his small group the next week and told them the story that, that the following weekend his wife had been away on a retreat, and so he took the weekend um, as an opportunity to deal with this, and he said, Gordy, it took some time because there were over 50 women on my list. And I went through them one at a time, and I prayed the prayer. And he said, I'll be really, and this is what he told his small group, I'll be really honest. I didn't have high hopes. I didn't have high expectations that anything would happen. So it wasn't like I was trying to make something up. He said, I began to pray this prayer. And he said, I can't explain it. I can't describe it. But something changed. He said, I could feel it physically. He told his small group. He said, God did something. And he said, and, and some of those memories are just gone. And he told his small group, he said, the next time when my wife came home and we had sex, it was in a completely different experience. He said, I felt like I was fully present with her for maybe the first time in our marriage. He said, there's something. And so he said, guys, this is real. And I've talked to so many guys that have been through this process. And I've dealt more with guys, some with couples, but mostly because I'm dealing with men. But I think it's true for both men and women of realizing that if this is true, if we have created bonds that God doesn't want us to, he also wants to heal us from that. He doesn't want you to carry those through the rest of your life. And know that it may be a process. It may be a process where you go through this and then periodically God brings that person back to your mind and you're thinking, okay, maybe it's not fully gone. God, again, I give it to you. Would you fully release that? Um, um, and then know that you know, there may be other people that come to uh, your mind as well. And then finally, um, on how you rebuild, if, you're, if your marriage was, you know, if your marriage, if you recognize this is us, um, again, I would recommend her books um, because she went through the exact same process with her husband. And what she says is, um, and again, I've had other couples experience this as well, is to rebuild the intimacy in your marriage, yes, it's possible. Um, probably needs to happen by taking a, a season away from sex. She went to her husband and said, I want us to stop having sex for two months. And she said, after the blood drained from his face, she said, but I want us to focus on this stuff. And, and her promise to him was, if we do, I think the sex will be better afterwards. And he said, okay, we'll do that. Um, but to focus on, uh, you can't just take like two months off of sex and not see each other either, you know, to make it easier. It's, it's taking two months and working on the relationship when sex even isn't a part of the equation and allowing the intimacy to, to rebuild. And I've put some stuff at the end of your handout uh, that Hillerson suggests for that exercise as well. So as we go to small groups, here's a couple things. Um, go ahead and process your reaction to this teaching, but here's just a, a couple of words of caution. Don't say anything in your small group that would dishonor your spouse or that would dishonor your ex-spouse, for those of you that are not married anymore. Um, and this is not the time to reveal... Um, things that you and your spouse are not in agreement about revealing to your group. So you might need to have a conversation with your spouse before the group starts. Um, this could be an opportunity for some of you to share some stuff that, um, and allow God to tear away some of that shame. Um, but maybe it's just a time to discuss the topic and uh, we're not forcing you to go anywhere deep from there. All right, let me pray and then you guys can go to small groups. God, thanks for, again, I thank you for, I think, the healing that you want to do in so many people in this room. Um, who have not experienced life and marriage and intimacy um, and freedom, whether they're married or not, from the bonds that they've carried forward. And so, God, would you be about the healing process in each one of us? In Jesus' name, amen.